Today we have one of the top downloads in 2021. This is an interview I did with Robert Rose. He is the chief strategy officer at the Content Marketing Institute, and we spoke in depth about content marketing strategy at enterprises and small businesses. And if you are doing content marketing at all, this is a must listen. Uh, that's why I'm re-releasing it. So um, I'm going to play it for you. But before I do, I want to tell you about a new white paper that I just released called What Does a Digital Marketer Do? It has the top 12 skills that you need to be successful in digital marketing in 2021 in order of importance. And you can download it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash essential skills. Again, this is the new What Does a Digital Marketer Do white paper, which walks you through everything that is involved in the process of digital marketing from square one um, all the way through to the end of the process. Uh, it's a quick read. It's got images. And I think you'll enjoy it. You can download it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash essential skills. And now let's listen to the interview with Robert Rose. Welcome B2B startups, changeups, scaleups, and grownups. This is the B2B lead gen podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Robert Rose, welcome to the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate having the founder and chief troublemaker for the content advisory on the line. Also a three-time best-selling author and uh, content marketing expert I, on the well, show. That's what they so say. <laughs> thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. I appreciate being here. And I wanted to do a deep dive with you on content marketing today. Um, and I want to start by talking about pain points. Okay. You know, so so when you're when you're coming in the door to solve the content marketing problem, what is the problem you're solving? Well, it varies, um, and it and it varies honestly. It's 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 the funny that you should ask because it's one of the first questions that I will ask um, typically when we're talking about content marketing. Is one of the things I'll do is draw a picture of the. Uh, customer engagement journey. And typically I love that, uh, uh, the sort of infinity loop version of that. Um, and I'll say, you know, basically like any doctor would say, I'll say, you know, point to the point to the place on the doll where it hurts. Um, and in many cases, what we end up finding is, is that there are multiple places that it's really struggling right now where either the business is having a tough time, drawing brand awareness or they're trying to do lead generation at a more efficient level or they're trying to create less churn or, or more loyalty to their product or service or they're trying to build in some extra experience, new customer experience that their customers can have and either turn it into a, a new product or quite frankly, you know, draw in, uh, you know, extra brand evangelism, et cetera, et cetera. And then right back around to the top of the group or the top of the engagement journey again. So it varies by customer. The, the overall sort of shared paid point, I would say, is 
they're, they're recognizing that traditional methods of direct marketing aren't as effective. Certainly they may be as efficient, but they're not as effective as they used to be. So everything from cold calling to traditional advertising, PR, um, you know, all of those things are in many ways evolving, not dying, but certainly evolving. And they're looking at more effective ways. And they've typically heard that content marketing might be an answer to that question. And, and I am there. So, so if these are the problems, sort of the known problems that they're willing to discuss with you, what about after a few drinks at the bar late at night when the, you know, the armor is off, what are the, what are the, what are the, the, the problems, the real problems that are bothering them that they may not be willing to admit? Oh, the biggest one is, is that they don't understand their customers at all. Um, that they really don't understand how they're different, why they're in business and what their customer is really looking for. They, you know, they understand it at a surface tension level um, where it's, you know, something around product features and benefits and solution oriented uh, X, Y, Z or whatever it may be from a positioning standpoint. But so much of what certainly I went to school for early in the days of learning about marketing, the sort of what we would call classic product marketing lessons just aren't really well understood these days by businesses because they're moving so fast. And so most of that has to do with, you know, what jobs to be done are we trying to solve for the customers? And two, what do they really value? What is it that they really truly need and, and, and value? And, and, and most, quite frankly, especially small and mid-sized businesses aren't asking that question. I was um, uh, invited to go on a, a cruise with a, a, you know, just a, a day cruise with a, a very successful entrepreneur, you know, multimillionaire. And uh, he's talking to me, he's an, he's an inventor and he's done quite well. And he says, how do I get people to pay attention to products that don't exist yet? And I'm thinking about what you're saying, you know, and, and what you've, what, you probably covered in Mark in, in school, you know, a lot of it was about understanding customers from the standpoint of products that exist already, but we're in this environment where things are moving so quickly, you know, technology is creating these new products that people don't even often the people that create them don't even really know what potential they have. So does that aggravate the situation? Oh, certainly, you know, it's, you know, especially in today's world where technology has truly, you know, we often talk about how technology has democratized the idea of content and marketing and advertising and really disrupted that whole space. And what we often forget is that technology has really democratized all aspects of the product development journey. You know, I saw some statistic that said 90% of the costs have now come out of manufacturing. Um, in the last two decades, which means, you know, manufacturing things on demand and, and, and getting that, you know, getting a new physical product into market is way easier than it used to be. What that's done, however, is that it has made many 
companies lazy to get to market faster and faster and faster where businesses and business strategies these days are looked at as pop songs, not as long-term going concerns. And so often you get that exact conversation that you had with the, uh, the, you know, that, that guy on the boat where you end up, there's a wonderful talk um, Steve Jobs did back in the 1997, I think it was, um, at just as he was coming back to Apple. And he said, you know, he was getting, you know, raked over the coals in this conference. Um, there's a great video on YouTube and he gets raked over the coals for killing off so many of the products that Apple was creating at the time and really simplifying the product line. And somebody was saying, you know, why are you doing that? And he said, because what's happening is we have, we are engineering products and then giving them to marketing and saying, here you go, figure out how to sell it. He said, and we have to do exactly the opposite. We have to go figure out what the customer experience is and what they need and then backwards engineer the product we need to make to solve that. And that's the thing that we've most often forgotten and it gets, you know, it truly has aggravated the whole process of how we operate in marketing and sales. Let's get back to this, this, this discussion of problems. So often, not often, but, but over the course of my, you know, experiences, professional experiences, sometimes I'm in a situation, a consulting environment where I see a problem that I know that the client may have, but the client doesn't know that that's their problem. <laughs> and, and sometimes if I, if I go straight to that problem without connecting with them on the problem that they think they have, uh, you know, I, I miss, I, I don't close the business, right? Yeah. They, I'm unable to connect with them. So, so for the purposes of this discussion around content marketing, are there frequent unknown problems that you see that you'd love to just be able to say to the potential client, look, or client, here's the problem, but, but you don't because you think they're not ready for, to hear that yet. It's, it happens all the time. That's the reason I'm laughing is because it's, it's so common where, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. You know, I, we worked with a, a, a business to consumer company. It was a pet, pet company. They sold, uh, they sell pet supplies and all sorts of things. Um, and the CMO there was interested in getting into content marketing and really wanted to develop a strategy and said, you know, I want to develop a content marketing approach and, you know, I'm going to hire you to come in and do this strategy. And we said, great. Um, she wanted to be the, you know, the answer for all things about health and pets. And she said, you know, we're, whether we need a blog or a magazine or whatever, come in and figure that out. And we went in and started doing the work. And what we discovered very quickly was there was no way they were going to be anything related to the authority on the health of pets, because quite frankly, they had no authority on it. They had no ability to do that. They not only didn't have the ability to do that, quite frankly, the brand that the, uh, that the organization had exactly the opposite. People thought of them as you never asked them about what, you know, the health of a pet should be because they just simply, you know, it's 18 year old kids in high school on temp jobs that sort of man their pet stores. And, and so the first thing we came in and said, listen, you've got you've to figure out how you're going to become first the knowledgeable thought leader in this 
do a skills audit, do a knowledge audit, find and partner with people who are going to give you the bona fides to actually be the thought leader in health for pets and then launch something. Because if you launch something now, it's just going to be a big fat fail. And it's, it's so many times when we talk to brands, they either want to claim a thought leadership position that they just don't have and want to wrap it around the brand, thinking that that's going to give them the brand values that they're, that they're looking for without, quite frankly, earning it. Or the other uh, sort of more operational challenges, they want to get right into the business of scaling content um, and serving the whole you know, sales and marketing and PR and you know, corp comms and every part of it. But they, quite frankly, haven't invested in anything having to do with the infrastructure needed to, to, to serve that in any meaningful way. So it's a, it's, it's a common challenge we see every day. I wonder what that infrastructure looks like. Well, it's different. It's different for, for any organization and it's different based on the strategy. The, the, one of the things that we've been talking with clients a lot about lately is really aligning what it is you want to do in a business around content and then figuring out the right operational model, which then defines the infrastructure and, and technology. What I mean by that is, you know, for different businesses, content is going to be a, a, a more or less meaningful part of what it is they do as a strategic function. But regardless of how much of a strategic function it is, it has to be treated as such. You know, the metaphor that I've been using lately these days is, you know, content is the thing that we create more of even than the product or service that we put into the marketplace. And so just like we treat accounting or legal or PR or, you know, sales as a strategic function that has standards and protocols and guidelines and operational infrastructure, content deserves the same approach. Um, and figuring that out, sorting that out, what the right infrastructure is, what the right operational model is, is truly the heart and foundation of then saying, okay, now we have the, you know, we've done the very unsexy work of figuring out what the roles, responsibility, operational model, and technological infrastructure are. Now we can start sorting out how we want to create some sexy, cool new customer experiences that are connected and measure and do neat things like generate leads. I remember, this was years ago, getting a call from a guy who said, I want to come up first for language translation. And I said, give me your website. I go to, go to his website. It's, a, it's, a, it's English as a second language school. And I'm looking, and then I do a search for language translation, and Google Translate comes up. And, uh, and I say to him, well, you know, if you want to come up first for language translation, you're going to have to rebuild your site. And it's going to have to be a better site than this one. He says, I I'm happy with my site. I don't want to change my site. I just want to come up first for language <laughs> translation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Needless to say, I lost that account. No regrets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like the race car driver saying, oh, no, I'm really happy with my Pontiac, you know, uh, I just, I, I don't want to change race cars. I just want to win the race. Right. <laughs> so, so what, so when you're out there, because I know you're out there consulting with people around content all the time, what surprises you most about how people use content marketing or, or try to use content marketing? 
I think, you know, what surprises me, well, I, I'll, I'll point to two things, you know, so that I'm not sort of overly negative here. I would say that there are two things that continually surprise me. The, the, the first thing is how truly creative most people, the practitioners in most businesses are. Um, and you know, there are no shortage when I talk with the practitioners in most businesses of really cool, interesting ideas that they kind of had, quite frankly, hidden away in a desk drawer. Um, and, and the reason for that is because, and maybe this is the most surprising thing, is how many of them struggle to get these things, you know, approved or even you know, a, a quick nod for uh, a beta or, or anything, because quite frankly, the, this is the way it's always been done, uh, you know, all in quotes, um, approach to marketing and sales, simply just, you know, that institutional momentum simply prevents them from doing anything that might fail. And, you know, we, we see so much lip service paid these days to innovation and disruption and doing interesting things and learning by failing and all of that stuff. And, and then you go into businesses and you actually see that it doesn't really happen very often. That, that, that stuff doesn't, just doesn't happen that often. And those companies that are actually willing to fail and do innovative and disruptive things and, and try those new things are pretty rare. Um, and I guess sort of those two things are, are really surprising to me. How, you know, the quantity of really good ideas and the paucity of uh, the, you know, sort of, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it, intestinal fortitude for the safeness of this podcast um, to, uh, to actually go do it. For, for those organizations that are willing to fail, are there common content marketing mistakes you see people making? Yeah, the biggest one is they don't wrap it around something that builds an audience. Most organizations that are struggling with content marketing, you know, maybe they're getting some good sporadic results um, are because they're, they're, they're treating it as a simple tactic to traditional direct marketing campaign. In other words, they're using ad hoc assets that they're creating, whether it's infographics or blog posts or white papers or all of the above, and they're using it as bait to fuel a paid marketing campaign and draw in more leads. And so, you know, six months or eight months or a year later, they have a whole SharePoint server full of assets, but none of them are really connected in a way that could, you know, create a cohesive resource center or a blog or a magazine or anything that resembles something that would, you know, attract and build an audience. And thus, really the assets that are created during that time period are they live and die by the marketing campaign that they support. If the marketing campaign succeeds, it was a good asset. If the marketing campaign fails, it was a bad asset. And of course, those two things aren't necessarily correlated. You can have a great white paper suffer at the hands of a horribly done paid social campaign and vice versa. But the idea is, is that most are still looking at it through the lens of campaign focused, you know, rinse and repeat marketing through paid promotions and not looking at it as how do we build an owned media strategy that builds an audience. 
And so I guess the antidote is some sort of a North Star that you're constantly moving towards, some sort of right. overarching vision. Is that what it is? Yeah, some people might call it a strategy, I think it's called. Um, you know, so it's one of those things where, you know, thinking and measuring twice before we cut once is, you know, just a, a it's a good thing to do. <laughs> but strategy doesn't necessarily denote an overarching topic or a sort of a grand category. Is that what you're suggesting when you say ad hoc that they sort of, you know, switch from one subject to another without thinking about how they're contributing to a cohesive, comprehensive collection of content that's interrelated yeah. and complementary? Yeah. Almost like, right. a mag- like a magazine or a book or a movie or Exactly. We still look at so we look at content marketing through the lens of you know, how we, you know, grew up and or understand direct marketing, which is I create assets, you know, brochures, one sheets, uh, you know, uh, signs, advertisements, basically one-off pieces of creative that serve as the influencer in a paid or shared or in some ways distributed manner to try and, and, and drive some kind of action. And so it's very campaign focused, very singularly focused, and doesn't really connect to anything bigger. And so the best content marketing strategies have an overarching, uh, you, you, you called it well with a North Star, right? Where because I created content piece number one, content piece number five is more valuable. And because content piece number five exists, content piece number one through four is more valuable because they're connected to something that provides a magnet to people to want to stay, to people to want to experience more and more of it. Otherwise, we're just we're still in that constant you know, peaks and valleys of you know, launch campaign, measure campaign, launch new campaign, measure new campaign. And content marketing, when it's done well, is more of a constant pressure of building more and more, you know, uh, uh, audience members, certainly, but uh, more and more assets to a thematically connected center of gravity so that over time, the whole corpus of content becomes more valuable as a result. And I guess when you first come in the door, you must see different types of content marketing strategies in place. Yeah, that are not what you're talking about. That's right. In varying degree, <laughs> right? In, in varying degree, we see, you know, great content um, being done in ad hoc ways. Um, or we see um, siloed, you know, and don't need to talk about the silo location of, 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 you know, of, of, of marketing more broadly, but we see great content getting created in pockets, but quite frankly, not seeing broader distribution or usage because, you know, it was created in sales enablement. So the demand gen team doesn't even know about it, or the brand team doesn't know about it. We see so much duplication, um, and reworking of content because there's no centralized approach to how we do it. So, you know, very quick story. I was just working with a company two weeks ago where they would look at content that performs well and the different global groups. So EMEA or APAC or, you know, um, other parts of the South America, other parts of the organization get this report saying, Hey, here are the content pieces that really did well. 
And so they'd have to go and basically deconstruct all the PDF files so that they could create their own versions of it, which took them, you know, 12 weeks to be able to do. And, you know, and, and they had to deconstruct all those things from finished assets because quite frankly, nobody who originated them had the forethought to actually break them up into component pieces so that they could be repurposed easily. Just that simple thing saved them millions of dollars a year because just somebody said, hey, why don't we just make these component pieces so that when we do send them out to the global regions, all they have to do is translate the text and replace the images and construct new PDFs out of them. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. When you're um, advising an organization on creating content that uh, maps to different stages of the buyer journey, what are some of the, um, some of the, some, what's some of the guidance that you give them around the, that adaptation of content marketing to different stages of the buyer journey? Yeah, it's, it's, there's, I think there's two main ones, which is one, you know, what experience are you creating at that buyer's journey? Um, and, and, and the thing I think a lot of people, and this gets to the, the siloed nature of marketing these days, I think what a lot of organizations forget is how important the context of the previous and the next step in that journey are. Um, you know, we all know that it's nonlinear these days and, you know, you can have people coming in at various pieces of it and, you know, and, and all of that. We've seen the diagrams um, of all, all of those different kind of nonlinear journeys. And yes, believe in all of that. But there is some sort of desired action that we're orchestrating here where a consumer is coming in previous to the stage that I'm optimizing for and there's some place they're going to go next. And what we often forget is how quickly that trust or that experience can be ruined either by some subpar performance of the experience that precedes ours or by handing them off to something that is quite frankly subpar that's next. Um, the great example of this is when, and I've just watched this happen so many times in B2B businesses where you know, a client will call up the sales guy and say, I just got this amazing white paper from you guys. It's just wonderful. The thought leadership is awesome. And I'm, I got a few questions on it. And the sales guy goes, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Well, now you've done two things, right? You've won, you've ruined the white paper, but two, more importantly, you've ruined any kind of relationship that that customer is going to have with that sales guy. Cause he's not only providing no value, he's providing negative value. And so just even having an understanding of, how all those experiences are connected um, and having that sort of uh, sort of mentality of a portfolio of experiences across the buyer's journey is one of the most important things we can do. And that, that just takes, you know, it takes collaboration. It takes the idea of not operating in silos to the best of our ability. And it takes the, the forethought again to create that infrastructure where content can be shared independent of where it sits in the buyer's journey. This is the internet, and it's filled with unencrypted data. Data that can be targeted by all kinds of eavesdroppers. All I need is Wi-Fi and some software, and I can see everything you're up to. The EFF has been protecting your privacy online for over 25 years. And now, their goal is to encrypt the web, the whole thing. Switch every site from insecure HTTP to secure HTTPS. That S 
makes all the difference. It's for secure. The lock lets you know your session is safe. Here's the problem. Not every site supports encryption yet, but the EFF has you covered with two powerful tools. The first is HTTPS Everywhere. It's a plugin for browsers like Chrome and Firefox. It encrypts your communication with most major websites. So they can't spy on it. The second tool is CertBot. If you run your own site, you can easily secure it with an SSL certificate. That used to be a huge, expensive hassle, but CertBot simplifies and automates the whole thing. And it costs zero dollars. And that's just the beginning. Find out all the ways the EFF is protecting your rights online at EFF.org. Stay safe out there. I, um, you know, I started writing this uh, uh, blog post about um, how uh, clients hire PR, PR agencies, and it, it quickly spun out of control and became a white paper. And, uh, and now I've got, you know, this white paper about it, right? And it's, there's a lot of information in it. Um, it takes me a long time to write good content. Uh, you know, to the extent that it is good, it takes me hours. I mean, I probably have 24 to 28 hours into this white paper mm-hmm. of, you know, hardcore writing. And quite frankly, it could use another pass, which is why I haven't sent it out to be published yet, because I want to take another pass at it. Um, and, you know, you see so much content on the Internet doesn't really it's not thought leadership it's thought repeatership or it (laughs) it does it doesn't really advance the conversation in any way it maybe just agrees or rehashes or regurgitates what's already out there you know having pushing the conversation forward for me takes a, a hell of a lot of time and i've got to think the same is true for most people so when you think about this concept of creating content that's really going to cut through the clutter and someone's going to find interesting and worthwhile if they take the time to read it, you know, how do you get your arms around the appropriate staffing levels for content marketing at an organization? Well, it's, you know, that's a difficult question um, and not one that's easily answered. Um, you know, the, the, cause you're right. The, the, the the real answer to how long should it take to create something great is an unknowable, you know, is an unknowable uh, uh, answer. Um, you know, sometimes it takes me 30 minutes to write something that ends up resonating fairly well. And sometimes it takes me, you know, four weeks. Um, the, you know, and it, and it doesn't mean or doesn't suggest that there shouldn't be a cadence that is adhered to, you know, deadlines and all of that. And as, as I've heard so many great creative people say, you know, nothing gets you more creative than a deadline. So all of those things are true. Um, and certainly the flip side of that is true that we ship way too much stuff that is mediocre um, and not very good simply because there is a deadline and, and instead of actually publishing it or, you know, we should maybe rethink that. I think the, it all starts to me with, you know, the resourcing question and the, um, the, you know, how do we staff this 
starts with what is the business goal. And, you know, one of the things that we walk through in workshops and stuff like that is to say, you can't understand your goals until you understand what it is that you have from, you know, from an overarching business goal until you ha- understand what it is you're going to have to achieve them. In other words, it's very easy for me to list out a ton of goals on a whiteboard and go, great, those are our goals. Now I can actually go tell you what I'm going to need in order to you know, resource wise in order to, to get there. We almost never get to do that. We are almost always working from this is the team we got. This is the budget we're going to have. And so what can we do with that? And so most often the thing I think is important to start with is looking at the resources we have and the, what, you know, what it is we can reasonably expect to ask for and if we want more and then listing out all the goals and figuring out, you know, as Michael Porter famously said, what we're going to do and most importantly, what we're not going to do and really getting very tight on the business goals that we're trying to achieve with that because then we can assign the appropriate level of resources, the quantity of content we're going to create and all the things we want to do requisite with the goal that we just set. But in the B2B game, it's, it's almost always, you know, increased lead uh, quantity and quality. You mean, is it, is it, should it be increasing in quantity over quality? It seems like it usually is. I mean, my experience is that's usually the goal in B2B where there are salespeople that are looking for prospective customers to sell. You know, it's content marketing is usually, you know, in this environment where people don't want to talk to a salesperson until they self-educated and made up their mind on their own, although they haven't made up their mind. They're consuming the content that content marketers have created prior to that point. But it seems like, you know, the most consistent um, and sometimes it's other things, high, hiring and reputation. But the most consistent goal I see behind content marketing in the B2B space is lead generation and, you know, improving lead quality. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and the, the, anytime I see in a B2B organization where the question is quantity, um, usually, and at the, at the expense of quality, it's because the business doesn't understand the strat- the content strategy that it's trying to drive. Um, you know, that tells me immediately that there's no strategy. Um, because what it, what it means is, is that we're looking at the content we're creating as sort of one-time use or limited use assets that are going to fuel my efforts for some campaign and the the salespeople or demand generation or quite frankly the all parts of the organization that are looking for more and more and more the reason they're looking for more is typically either because a it's working in some fashion and they want more you know give me more candy please or it's not working and we're just going to try and throw as much stuff against the wall um, as we possibly can. In either case, the, 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 the real root of that challenge is not how much content they're creating, but how they're using the content they are creating. And so, and, and an example of this is, you know, a B2B organization will create a white paper in the first quarter and they'll use it for a campaign. And then now they want another one. 
and they want another one, and then they want another one. So what do we do? We go, hey, we're going to need four white papers this year, one for each quarter. Why? We, why won't one amazing white paper suffice for the entire year? Now, there may be a good reason for that, but that's the question we should be asking is, are we really just tired of our own stuff and we, wanna, and we feel like we need something new? Or is it because it didn't work that we need something new? Or is it because we, quite frankly, are doing so amazing, we need another one just like it so that we can reach a, a similar different audience or a different target audience or something like that? We rarely ask the right questions. We just simply say, hey, we need more. And so the content people go, okay, great, I got to create more. Thus, the, quanti the, the quantity goes up and, and inherently the, the quality goes down. What, what sort of staffing models do you like for like helping an organization develop a digital content marketing skills? I mean, do, do, you, do you like it siloed in a, in a marketing department? Is there a center of excellence? Or do you try to, um, you know, uh, nurture those skills within each department? What is the best way to, to do it? I, I'm going to give you a, a, a very unsatisfying answer to that question and then hopefully um, amend it with a bit more of a satisfying answer. The, 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 the unsatisfying answer is yes. All of the above are appropriate, you know, given the right strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is, is that in most, and our research every year shows this, is that in most organizations, it's one or two people supporting the entire business. And so you'll have one or two people supporting sales and demand generation and PR and the C-suite all with creating content assets. And that's almost always uh, not going to scale the way that the business wants to scale just to our previous conversation. So what is the right model and where should it report into and, and all of that? Again, it comes back to, well, what are the business goals? What is the strategy? What is the right operating model to do that? And in many cases, it quite frankly can be anything that you just outlined. I've seen great, quote unquote, con centralized content marketing departments that service the business at a scaled level um, that, really, um, that really work extremely well with managing the owned media properties, but also supplementing that with assets into sales and the C-suite. Red Hat Linux is a great example of this. You know, the, Laura Hamlin's team is 43 people that she has writing content, editing content, acting as managing editors. She's got strategy people. She's got librarians. She's got data people. She's got a whole team that focus in on how content is a strategic function and, a, and you know, siloed, hopefully not, but certainly a separate and discrete department. In other organizations, I see it as part of a fabric of you know a you know what we typically call the web of capabilities right so we're working with a large healthcare company right now where they have content creators that are physicians they've got content creators that are uh, uh, other subject matter experts in particular diseases and particular kinds of content that they create for their blog for their uh, kiosks for all kinds of things and what they do is they actually have different you know, sort of more virtual or meta roles and responsibilities in each different group, whether you're part of the specialty service or whether you're part of PR and comms or marketing or brand. 
and all those virtual sort of teams get together on a regular basis as a center of excellence and work together on a shared editorial calendar and, and operate like that. So the operational model is key and it's key being focused on the, the ultimate, you know, the content strategy and which obviously ladders into the business strategy. So that's why I say it can, it can really be any of those models that you described. When we, when we started the conversation, we talked about the pain points and we kind of talked about those from the perspective of the buyer, the person who would buy content marketing, but let's focus on the person that receives the delivery of content marketing. So, mm -hmm. you know, after uh, an organization has hired resources in, inside or outside to perform content marketing functions, who receives the delivery of that? Is it the subject matter expert? Is it the marketing department? Is it search engine optimization? Is what, what department dovetails the most with content marketing? You know, typically it's going to be um, whoever the, you know, broadly speaking, I'll call them activation managers, but you know, we might understand them better as channel managers, right? So at least what we're saying now, I'm not suggesting this is the right or wrong way to do it, but what we see most often is, you know, the channels that are being managed these days, and there are so many, everything from social media channels to the owned media, such as the website, landing pages, email newsletters, um, blogs, um, paid media, uh, native advertising, you know, all kinds of ways that our content can act, get activated. And those channel managers are, and this is, you know, maybe something else to, to examine, which is those channel managers are typically siloed by organization as well, you know, so social media is in the PR group or social media is in demand generation or there's a customer service aspect to social media and then PR owns the corporate newsroom and then the web team or the demand gen team owns the website, you know, or the digital team owns the website. So that siloed nature of the business is also part of this. And so mostly what we see is if there is some kind of concerted, centralized, or you know, just organized effort around content, the, the dovetail, as it were, is two places. One is the, you know, who asked for it on the, on the more merchandised side of content. In other words, sales guy A or C-suite B or you know, demand gen team D you know, or it's going out to some activation channel somewhere as part of, you know, some campaign that's getting managed. If someone comes to you and says, I want to do, I need a content marketing tactic that's going to work fast. I need immediacy. <laughs> Is there, are there any sort of overarching principles that pop into your head? You think, okay, if you, if they want it immediately, I need to do X, Y, Z. Well, not, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. Not if they want it immediately, if they want it to, to work, to generate quality leads quickly. Yeah. Is there, is there a, a, a recipe for increasing the immediacy, the immediacy of, of the impact of a content marketing effort? Yeah. It's money. Um, you know, that, I mean, you know, and, and so you quickly, you, you quickly cross over from a content marketing strategy into a clever paid media strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so, you know, where does that line blur and where do you actually cross over um, is, is debatable. Um, but I would suggest that if your results are, you know, the, the, the need for results is immediate, that what you're really looking at is how do I create a paid media campaign that can draw in people that I need to persuade right away? Because typically we're talking mid and lower funnel activity. Um, and so the question is, where can I spend money? And then the, the, the creative question is, how can I create a clever piece of content to fuel that paid media effort? And it may look a little like content marketing, but it's not really. I mean, it's sort of like, eh, it really stretches the bound. This is where, you know, branded content really sort of starts to emerge, right? It's typically much more driven by a paid media campaign, um, much more mid funnel because it's about the brand. It's about persuading you to do something, see the movie, buy the car, come to the restaurant, come to our theme park you know, stay at our hotel, buy our software, you know, whatever, whatever the call to action is, but it's, it's done in a very clever way, you know, so we make a parody video or we make a fun, um, you know, kind of experience that's going to help you uh, understand the value of the brand. And then we pay for the distribution of that thing so that you actually get to have that experience as part of that, you know, campaign. And hopefully the action item coming out of it is, you call a salesperson or you put the thing in your shopping cart or you sign up or whatever the, whatever the buy now is. So, okay. Hypothetical situation. You're giving, you're, you're invited to go talk in a uh, high school senior class. Um, and uh, it's some sort of class about kids choosing the school they're going to go to and what they're going to study. And one of the kids says to you, I want to go into content marketing. I've been reading about it. I know it's, I think it's the future. I love it. I want to do it. What should I study? What would you, what's your answer? Uh, wow. That's a great question, actually. Um, you know, this is, so asterisk next to this because you're, you're going to get a little bit of my personal bias into this. I mean, I suppose that's inherent in the question that you're going to get my personal bias in this, but, but you're going to get a heavy dose of my personal bias here, which is, I think some kind of, you know, liberal arts, um, degree. Um, you know, I came out of school with an English lit, um, degree and it, to whatever degree it means, I know how to write a little bit. I know how to communicate. I can appreciate good storytelling. I can appreciate good content driven experiences. Um, and I can synthesize things together. You know, the other one is, is uh, journalism, of course, um, where those are typically skills that, you know, where you are taught to uncover the story, uncover the value. The thing that I've been talking about most recently is this idea of wisdom, right? So, you know, in many ways, what we look at today in hiring this is broadly in marketing, not just in content marketing, but we look at that sort of T-shaped people um, to, in order, you know, that are that are broadly knowledgeable about a particular area, but have some depth in one particular area. And I think that particular area for content marketing is how to pull disparate things together and make it make sense from and, and make people care about it. So a storytelling component to it. And I think a liberal arts degree is probably the best 
thing for that. Um, so many of the content marketers and the successful content marketers that I know are in some way artists or musicians or former writers or journalists. Um, and really what they know how to do great is pull a bunch of data, pull a bunch of information together into something that is compelling and interesting and emotionally connective um, and actually tells a story. The other thing is, honestly, is classic marketing, um, which you could also get as part of a liberal arts degree and sort of, you know, certainly studying and knowing the classics in marketing, which is a knowledge, quite frankly, that I'm, you know, I'm a little... I'm a little dismayed to see how little attention is paid to it these days. You know, kids don't learn the four P's anymore, and that's a little sad to me. Dear parents, much of what we learn in this world comes directly from you. Whatever your message is, it will become part of us forever. Please teach us to accept one another. Teach us to respect one another. Please do not fill our minds with hatred. Do not expose us to bigotry. Do not teach us to judge each other by race, religion, orientation, or the color of our skin. Teach us the concept of tolerance. Teach us to understand one another. Teach us to accept people of different cultures and persons with different beliefs than yours. Please help us to create a world where every man, woman, and child is treated equally. Dear parents, please don't teach us words of hate. We learn from you every moment. If you use a certain word which might be hurtful to others, we will repeat that word. Please don't show us acts of hate. If you act against people of different faiths, we will repeat your actions. Dear parents, we are your children, and we are relying on you to help us create a world where every person is tolerant of one another. So, you know, but be, whenever I'm, I'm getting ready to do uh, an interview like this, one of the ways that I prepare is I always go to like uh, HRFs or um, uh, SEMrush, put in the, the subject we're talking about and, and see sort of from a, from a search algorithmic standpoint, what are the other associated contents? Uh, what are the other topics associated with that, uh, that content? And so I put content marketing into SEM rush mm-hmm. into their topic research um, wheel before we called. And I was just overwhelmed by the number of white paper associated uh, <laughs> phrases that come yeah. up. And so I guess, you know, that's probably the most popular uh, type of content that people who are doing content marketing do. Yes. You know, I think what you're seeing there is the bias toward B2B in for the term. Um, you know, there's, it is gen content marketing is generally um, and, and, I, and, and I'm using italics here, generally a B2B concept. Um, that does not to say that B2C doesn't understand it, but you know, you go to Madison Avenue and you, you, know, you talk to the B2C agencies and the classic ad agencies, those that are really dealing with CPG companies and, um, and retail they don't know content marketing. They, I mean, they do, but they, they, they've heard the term, but they don't really, they don't really dive deep there. And that's something, you know, that's shame on us for not evangelizing it as well as we probably could in that market space and sort of resting on our laurels of the, the amount of B2B organizations that can get excited by the concept. Um, but I think that's what you're seeing in the search terms is the sort of 
over-indexing of B2B organizations um, and thought leadership as a strategy um, these days, um, especially when it comes to things like account-based marketing and thought leadership and, you know, sort of how B2B companies are differentiating based on their, you know, their thoughts, um, rather than B2C companies, which tend to look at this stuff more, like we were just talking about, more as branded content, brand journalism, um, native advertising, and, and, and some of that stuff. There's still a little... I'll, I'll say stuck, but I'm just, that's for lack of a better word. They're still stuck in sort of that old paradigm of, of because it's so transactional, can I, you know, just to your earlier point about the, can I create something quick that drives a quick demand for something? And, you know, whether that lives in a 30 second spot or a, you know, a banner ad or some cool stunt that I can put in the middle of Times Square that's still where most B2C organizations are, are staying for looking at, you know, things like magazines and, um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, television shows and documentaries and those kinds of things. Those are still largely experimental. And, and anyway, that's why I think you're seeing the sort of over-indexing on the search side. It's fascinating though that you found that. On the B2B side, you know, if you're, if you're talking to a B2B about, you know, white papers and, you know, the use of a white paper to build thought leadership and to compel people to get to download it and, and, and get, uh, you know, sent into a nurturing campaign, what are some of the best practices or some of the uh, questions you would ask? How, how do you approach just, you know, from the blank slate standpoint, I want to do a white paper what are the things that you would ask me? What, what would you want to know? How would you guide that process? Well, I would, my first question would be, what is the white paper a larger piece of? You know, what is the, you know, you want to do a white paper. Well, let's that role belongs- play it. Let's yeah. role play it. Okay. okay, sure. So I want the white paper to um, address the problems that my buyer has. So tell me what that's a larger part of. In other words, I, I get that it wants, you want it to solve problems that your buyer has, but tell me the, what is the overall point of view that this one white paper is going to support? What is the overall experience that you want the customer to have? Is it to so be let's inspired say, to change or is it to... Let's say I have a useful framework yeah. which is unique. It's, it's my own intellectual property that I've created. It's a framework for addressing this problem, which is new. And I think dovetails nicely into the product that I have. It's one of the reasons I launched the product that I have. And my thought process is if I can attack the problem that the buyer has, then as they're searching for answers to the questions that they have online, maybe they'll find mine at different stages of the uh, purchasing process and and I'll build awareness and yep. get consideration and who knows, I'll, maybe I'll even make a sale. So what you've immediately told me in that answer is, is that you're only looking for people who are aware they have the problem and are looking for solutions to solve it. And you believe your framework is unique in that regard. So you're looking for low, medium to low funnel um, opportunities and you're not having any problem either driving awareness of your framework or driving awareness of the problem that it actually solves. Well, I'm concerned that if I if I fill up the top of the funnel with, 
you know, people who might be interested in the content, but maybe not have a need to solve the problem, then I'm going to piss off the salespeople because I'm going to give them all these crappy leads and then they're going to say my leads suck. Right. So you're saying where, so when I draw the, you know, when I draw the little infinity loop on the wall, you're saying basically the problem that I have right now is, is that lead generation is slow and I need more leads from my sales guys. Always. Yes. So you're targeting your, so it, it sounds like you're a new company. Um, and it sounds like you're addressing a very well-worn, at least you believe it to be a well-worn problem um, that you basically, you have a better mousetrap for solving the, the very commonly known problem of mice. And so usually in, regard, in my experience, usually in B2B, the problem's not that common. You know, that's why at the beginning of the discussion, I, want I to know talk to you this about is my, this, this is known yeah, this problems, your, unknown problems, well, spoken problems, unspoken problems. Exactly. So, so what you're, you're, what we're, you know, in our little role play there, what we're falling directly into is the classic B2B problem, which is, we're not actually targeting the people who the, 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 the greatest number of people who may actually have the issue. We're targeting people who are either looking to replace something that they already have, which is already a hill that's big enough for us to climb or B are out there already comparing us. Now that's not a base that we shouldn't necessarily cover, but my, my question would always be in that particular regard. I don't know that a white paper you know, a thought leadership paper is really because at that, at that point in the, in, in the journey, that person is relatively convinced that they have the problem. They're just looking at the, they're looking for the right framework for them. For you at that part of the journey, it's probably more time to tell customer stories, to tell like the success stories and or applicable or uh, implications of this change. Um, in other words, if you're going to, if you're hell bent on writing a white paper um, and a one-off white paper for this part of the journey, what I would say is what you really want to, what you really want here in order to signal, provide a strong buy signal is you want to write a white paper about the implications of the change of your framework. What are all the things that are going to have to happen in the person's business? What are all the, you know, unforeseen things with any of the solutions that they might select that yours is going to help them avoid what, you know, all of those kinds of things. In other words, selling them ideas where they naturally come to the conclusion that your, your, your framework is going to be the best one for them. So, and I'm not sure that that comes in the conceit of a white paper is, is the best vehicle for that. When I think of a white paper, I think of something that's going to teach me about, problems that I don't even know I have yet. Robert the way, Rose, one, of the I, biggest, I could... one of the biggest challenges with white papers these days is, so we, we tend to look at white papers segmented into three, um, three parts. One is the inspiration to change, basically teaching people that there's some, something out there that they didn't even know existed that inspires them to go, wow, I should change this part of my business or my life or whatever it is. The second is what we call the implications to change, which is what we're talking about, which is I've decided to change, but now I need to understand what are the implications going to be and how I can appropriately put the right uh, solution set together. And then three, you know, the, what we call the validation of the change. In other words, what are others like me going through the how to's the, the detailed technical documentation, et cetera, that will help me make sure that I succeed with this 
particular change. That first, and, and most white papers give lip service to the first, they really focus in on the second, and then they, they, they sort of um, uh, go you know, all out on the third because it's the thing that they understand the best. And quite frankly, it's the least interesting of all of it, especially early in the journey. Robert, Robert Rose, I could literally talk to you all day long and I see obviously why you are a world-renowned expert in content <laughs> <No>. marketing <laughs> and why so many people you know, bring you in to, to help with these problems. It's been a fascinating conversation. Oh, well, uh, one last that. question, just to wrap it up. Talk to us a little bit about the best metrics for evaluating the effectiveness of content marketing. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, is that we measure exactly the wrong thing in content marketing for the most part. We measure the content, not the behavior change. Um, and, and so, so much of what it is we, we look at is the consumption metrics, right? Whether it be clicks or downloads or whatever, um, even to the, some extent, you know, form fills, um, instead of the actual behavior change that the content enabled, you know, just to our, our, our previous conversation, um, at its highest level, you know, not to belabor this answer, but, but, but the, at its highest level, when I measure content marketing, what I want to measure is the delta between what do people who engage with content do versus those who don't, don't. In other words, if I create a resource center, or if I create a blog or a digital magazine or a series of white papers or a series of webinars or whatever it happens to be, and the people, the audience that goes through that, what do they do? Do they arrive you know, from organic search more commonly. In other words, they're less expensive than those that I'm paying for with paid advertising campaigns. Do they stay longer? Do they go through the funnel faster? Do they close at a higher rate? Do they buy more from us? Do they stay, you know, they churn out uh, less. I want to assign them attributes as audience members, those who have gotten value from us at some varying part of the, the customer journey and start to watch them. What is their behavior? What do they do? That's where I'm going to assign value for content. In other words, I'm not going to assign it by, you know, how many people, uh, you know, basically downloaded a piece, a white paper or form filled and registered for a white people paper. I'm going to look at the hundred people who signed up for the white paper. And I'm going to say, what did those people do? What did, you know, what did they do? Did they, did they, do they share us out more? Do they, uh, you know, do they call sales guys more readily? Do they become qualified leads at a higher rate? That Delta is what I want to measure. It's the easiest way that I can look at the value of content is to look rather at the value of the relationship that it helps me build with a potential customer. And that's not something you're going to find in a Google, you know, analytics. It's not something you'll find in Adobe and it's not something you'll find in the data fields uh, of some Marketo database. What it means is, is that we're going to have to get out of our chairs, go and talk with salespeople, go and talk with demand gen people, go and talk with the customer service people and run tests and say, here are the people. What did they do? Let's follow them through their journey and see what they did. And, start measuring them as the, you know, sort of engaged relationships rather than sort of metrics of, of uh, downloads and visits. 
Robert Rose, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.